Hello and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. Welcome, Abdulkader. Thank you so much for starting us off with this issue of sand, sustainability and security. I've been learning a lot about your work through various reports, articles and workshops, so it's really great to have you here. Well, thank you, Kate, for uh, inviting me, actually. I'm um, really happy to be able to work with you, I mean, to work on that issue and then to share with you my experience on this uh, part of the world, which is North Africa. Great. Would you be able to tell us about where you're based and the kind of work that you're doing at the moment? So I will try to introduce myself and to make it more uh, simple. So my name is Abdelkader Abderamane. I'm a senior researcher with the uh, ISS, which is the Institute for Security Studies based in Dakar. And I'm working within the uh, INACT program, which is the, uh, stands for Enhancing Africa's Response to Transnational Organized Crime. I'm also a, uh, a non-resident senior fellow at the uh, Athletic Council. And basically, I work on a wide range of issues related to Northwest Africa, geopolitical Sahel issues, terrorism, and for the past months, focusing on organized crime. And this is why I'm working on the, on the sand issue this year. So you've said the relationships between organized crime and sand. Would you be able to explain a little bit about what these relationships are and how you became interested or, or drawn to this this area? How did it emerge as something significant to study within the security framing? It's interesting. When we talk about sand trafficking, and when I talked about sand trafficking uh, earlier this year to, uh, to some people, uh, people usually don't understand that sand can be trafficked. And indeed, this is how uh, the, the way I, I, um, I came into uh, this, uh, this issue of sand trafficking was um, rather um, randomly. A few years ago, I was in Mali. I was doing some field work on drug trafficking, mm. drug trafficking in Mali and in the neighboring countries. And this is you know, through conversation, I came across this issue of sand trafficking in Morocco and sand traffickers or drug traffickers being linked to sand trafficking. So this is how I, um, I first learned about uh, sand trafficking in Morocco and sand trafficking in general. Were you surprised so, by this? Sorry, I'm just really interested if you're expecting to engage with drug trafficking and you find sand did this was this surprising was this known well initially initially it wasn't known and initially i was indeed surprised i mean this is not something but because as i said earlier i mean you don't really people usually don't think of sand trafficking in our i don't know subconscious and i'm talking about my myself but i think many people um trafficking sand is something like people cannot really uh, think of Mm. And uh, yes, indeed, I, w- I was surprised. I was surprised. And then, okay, I said, okay, well, uh, just leave it. Then when I returned from uh, Bamako, uh, at one point, I said, okay, let's do some research. I did some desk research. And to my surprise, indeed, I found out that sand was being trafficked in Morocco, but in other places, just as you know, uh, in, in China, in India, and uh, in other many places around the world. So um, this is how I came interested about uh, sand trafficking. And this I decided to do some really uh, thorough work on that, on, on that issue. To be clear, what we mean by sand trafficking, could you explain what this term means? I mean, we know that it has something to do with crossing borders, but what does it mean 
specifically with reference to sand? Sand trafficking can mean many things. I mean, sand trafficking, if we look at Morocco, for instance, Morocco uses 30 million tons of sand per year. Out of these 30 million, half of it, around 15 up to 16 million, are illegally extracted. That means that the uh, Moroccan authorities don't get any revenues out of this. This is a sand that doesn't come from official quarries, but could come from coastal parts. And when you go to Morocco, for instance, you see, for, whether from the, in the north or in the East Atlantic coast, you see many disfigured places where sand has been removed, whereas the, these places are supposed to be uh, leisure places for tourists or, or mm. locals. And this is what we mean by trafficking. That trafficking means that there is a organized group of people or groups of people organized behind this to extract it. They're organized to sell it. They're organized to make concrete out of it. Hmm. The uh, complexity of sand trafficking in Morocco is that it's a very pyramidal system. It's a system where politics, economics, social issues are all intertwined. In Morocco, sand trafficking is based on a, what Mor- Moroccans call the uh, Marzen system. It's a system well-established, pyramidal system which comes from the, from, from the top up to uh, the bottom of the uh, society. And everyone is involved in that. So in what way is everyone involved? Do people have different roles within this system? It's a system that has been put in place for decades, if, if not more. Let's put it this way. When we talk about corruption, for instance, in X country, we will think of a small group of people being involved in that for their own benefits. When it comes to Morocco, it's a system that obviously those who benefit most are those at the top of the pyramid, businesses, they can be politicians, uh, army officers. Mm. But in order for this system to, to be efficient and to stay alive, it involves all people, many people from all strata of society, up to a very simple, uh, I don't know, a uh, security guard, for instance, who would uh, help those people uh, uh, taking orders from, from a bull. He would take his financial share, which is meaningless, but for him it could be a lot. And then basically orders are coming from the top and everyone is taking a uh, benefit out of this. Right, okay, that makes sense. So it's really kind of embedded in huge portions of society. And this issue of sand trafficking, is it a relatively newer issue or has this been going on for a long period of time? Sand trafficking has been going on for years and for decades. In fact, when I was in Morocco in July, uh, this July, while traveling, I met some artists who, who painted a, a, a very beautiful uh, painting. And that was, he showed donkeys carrying bags of sand, mm-hmm. which were being trafficked. Basically, this showed the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So this is something that is old or it's not new. But I don't think that, that, that at that time it was considered as a uh, trafficking issue. Mm. The trafficking issue and at this scale has started in the past 20 years. And the turning point was probably what the Moroccans call the Plan Azur or Azur Plan, which was um, uh, put in place by, by the uh, Moroccan authorities. And the aim was to augment the, uh, the number of uh, foreign tourists coming to Morocco to 10 million people by 2010. And I think this is where sand trafficking really was boosted. How does the bid to bring tourism impact on sand trafficking then? How does this dynamic fit together? The Moroccan authorities decided that some places such as Agadir, Larache, Saida, Isawira in the north, in the east, would be further developed for tourism. 
So they started building, and obviously when it comes to building and construction, it means it calls for sand. And this is how I think sand trafficking started, because mm-hmm. some people really find the issue a means to make money out of it. So to give us a sense of the geography of this process, where is, largely speaking, the sand coming from and where is it going? It comes from everywhere. I mean, the, the, when you look at the map, you see the northern part, uh, especially the part of western, uh, the eastern part of Morocco, around the uh, Wujda and Nador. There are places where you can find about 10, even 15 kilometers of uh, coastal line, which mm. has been totally disfigured. Mm. Uh, places in the eastern coast of um, uh, Agadir, Larash, Sawira have also been really, really badly damaged. You can see dunes have totally disappeared or about to be disappearing there. Right. So we're talking largely about coastal sands that are being extracted to build other coastal areas. Yes. Yes. Right. This is what we're talking. We're talking about coastal sand. We're talking about marine sand. Yeah. We're not talking about quarries uh, uh, within the country. Uh, mm-hmm. These are legal and there's nothing uh, much. Well, we're talking about uh, sand that is, I mean, coastal sand, which is illegally extracted, mm-hmm. uh, which is a sand which is not suitable uh, for um, construction right. uh, unless it is uh, thoroughly washed, which is often not the case. Mm-hmm. So this is what we're talking about. Um, and in some of the earlier briefings that um, or discussions that we've had about your work, you've mentioned that coastal cities are under threat from erosion. I think this would be kind of really interesting for, for listeners to understand about those dynamics. So that sand is being taken from places, building elsewhere, and then in turn, other places are under threat, other urban areas are under threat. Would you be able to explain some of that those relationships? We have to understand that uh, uh, the coast in anywhere in Morocco or elsewhere plays a major role in protecting uh, uh, cities, uh, coastal cities. It plays a role in protecting uh, coastal cities from wind, storm, uh, uh, strong wind, wind, a storm, rising sea level. When when sand, coastal sand is extracted legally or illegally, and we're talking about Ill- illegal uh, extraction now. Uh, it means that dunes are disappearing. Those dunes play, as I said, they play a key role in protecting uh, cities. So when they disappear, those cities are no more protected from mm. those storms and from sea level. Uh, when we talk about this, we also talk about uh, 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 marine sand being extracted, well, what we call uh, 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 dredging. Mm-hmm. When it comes to dredging, it plays in, in a, it has a very, uh, an immense uh, negative impact on the uh, fishery, uh, for instance, uh, uh, sector. I mean, in some places like uh, uh, La Roche, 60% of fishes have disappeared uh, today due to uh, dredging, due to sand marine uh, extraction, basically. So this is what we talk about. What, what are, uh, these are some of the uh, negative impacts of um, uh, sand trafficking uh, and coastal sand trafficking in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So to say that we're seeing impacts in the present, is this something that's discussed in society or are the government acting? I think that governments are very aware of that. And then when we look at Morocco, Morocco is very well tooled. Uh, It has numerous laws that protect. But the problem with this is is, um, that they either not applied or there are uh, 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 gray areas or loopholes 
into this, those, those laws. Right. Okay. And are the authorities able to act on this issue or are there certain barriers, obstacles? If, if we refer to the, the system that you were talking about earlier, where a lot of people are, are embedded in it, is this one of the significant obstacles to actually managing this issue? This is indeed the, uh, the, the, the key issue. And the key issue is how do you fight, how do you, do, do you tackle uh, illegal uh, sand extraction, illegal coastal mining uh, within uh, in Morocco, whilst we all know that the system is made for that. The system is made for trafficking. There is a social, political, economic system, uh, a pyramidal system, which is there to, uh, uh, to not only benefit the big uh, players at the top of the pyramid, but it's also a means for the authorities to keep everyone satisfied. So who is shedding light on the issue? Who is speaking out? There's a civil society in Morocco that uh, is playing a, a part or their own part, their own role. They they uh, they point out the uh, issue of sand trafficking. They they would um, they they um, they're really trying to prevent sand trafficking. They prevent uh, construction sites in 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 different places. Mm. There are, but I think there are just too few people doing so, and. Unfortunately for them, there's also this issue of uh, how much can they do? Because mm. it's an issue that is embedded within the society and within the whole political system. Mm. Which kind of leads me to a bigger question. And I'm not sure whether or not this is something anyone can really answer, but I would be really interested to get your thoughts. What do you think it's going to take to change? What do you think it's going to take to actually engage meaningfully with this issue of sand trafficking? Two things, I would say, although there are probably other, but the first one is, as I said, I mentioned uh, the uh, Plan Azur earlier on. And this Plan, uh, Plan Azur, which is, which is meant to bring more uh, tourists to Morocco, ironically might have the, um, the, uh, the other effect of, um, uh, of with having less people, less foreign tourists, visiting Morocco, because tourists would come to Morocco to visit, obviously, socks and enjoy the beautiful food and, and mountains and many other things. But they would also like to enjoy, you know, the beautiful beaches of Morocco. But if those beaches disappear, then there will be obviously less tourists for Morocco. The other issue and the other way for Moroccans to, to get aware and to, of that issue and perhaps to do something is if the Moroccan authorities get pressure from from external pressure from abroad because this is the only way from my 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 feed work and from what i've heard with people working on this issue Moroccan authorities would only listen to external partners for instance in Morocco and elsewhere, there is this uh, Ramsar um, uh, label, international label. Basically, you have sites, uh, natural sites that are uh, labeled Ramsar. Mm-hmm. And basically, these are protected by international uh, uh, organizations. And the Moroccan authorities, for instance, never touch these sites because they know that if they touch these sites, international partners would raise their voice 
against the Moroccan authorities. So, and this is what I've been told is by labeling all the places, this will stop uh, uh, sand trafficking or construction sites uh, on those places. Having said that, it would be difficult. It would be difficult to label all uh, the, 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 perhaps two thirds of the uh, Moroccan uh, coastline. Mm. So it's really, it's really a tough, tough, uh, complex issue for Moroccans uh, uh, to tackle. It really sounds like that, and I know that you've used this word, but the embeddedness of this—it feels so deeply ingrained you know, for want of a better word, um, in, into a system that's already there and um, that's pretty pervasive. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear your thoughts and understand a bit more about how an international spotlight might be able to shift the nature of this issue a bit more. But again, it sounds really complex. It sounds like it's going to take time. It is, it is. And Moroccan authorities have, they're very, very um smart, I would say. They're very smart because, they, for instance, they organized the uh, COP22 uh, in um, uh, 2016. Mm. And then um, they play on that. They, they, they know they all often present that as a, uh, uh, you know, as a means for them to, um, to tackle issues um, r- related to the uh, ecosystem in Morocco, to mm. related to the environment system in, uh, in Morocco, related to the protection of the environment in Morocco. Uh, this is in theory, uh, just like, as I underlined, uh, all the laws that um, are not applied. In theory, they are very well tuned. When it comes to practice and when it comes to applying those laws, uh, I think this is where uh, uh, it becomes very uh, problematic. Thank you so much, Abicardo. It was really great to, to speak with you and really appreciate the work that you're doing and your ability to share it so clearly. So thank you. Thank you to you, Kate. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, share my review uh, with you and with your listeners. Halanishi, it's so great to have you here. We met very recently, but I've heard about your work in the past and the big moves that you're making in Makweni County in Kenya. So I will hand it over to you to make the introductions of yourself. Thank you very much, Kate, and really nice to meet you again here. And thank you very much for inviting me to this forum where I can just talk about what you're doing and my perspectives on the subject issue. Uh, so my name is Halinisha Yusuf. I'm from Kenya. I am currently heading an organization that is managing sand resources at a sub-national level, what we call the county, a county, a county is a sub-national level government in Kenya. And um, uh, my background is in uh, environmental studies. Great. And you've kind of given us a very brief hint at what you're doing. You're heading up this organization that is managing sand in this part of Kenya and McQuinney County. Could you tell us how that started? What's the situation with sand in this area? So McQuinney County is one of the semi-arid counties of the country. Uh, which is the, um, very close to the urban city that is Nairobi and the metropolitan. And um, for the longest time, Makwini County and the neighboring counties that surround Nairobi city have been the, the sources of sand for the mm. construction of the city. Of course, with the um, growing population in the, in the city, 
coupled with the urban migration uh, as people search for you know better services, education, for employment. So the city has been growing rapidly, and so is the development, infrastructure development. And this has, um, for, the, for a long time, for many decades, um, has been putting pressure on the sand sources, which are especially the rivers, the dry riverbeds uh, in the neighboring counties um, that supply uh, river sand to the construction industry in the, in, the, in, the, in the city and also the environs. And so Makwini County had not been spared um, it was one of the biggest suppliers of sand to Nairobi. And um, in 20, 2013, when the, oh, the Kenyan government uh, mm. devolved um, governance to counties also, um, uh, sand, um, natural resource management was also devolved. And so sand as a natural resource is being managed by the counties. And so in 2014, the county government of Makwini um, in the first in the first term of the uh, governance, uh, they started looking at uh, sand because there was we were starting to have a bit of uh, tensions in some some of the sand harvesting areas. Okay, and, and and you know we had people that were against sand harvesting because they had already started seeing the negative impacts on the environment, negative impacts on water availability, um, you know, social issues like, uh, you know, children dropping out of schools, um, drug abuse, because people have, you know, quick cash from sand. Mm-hmm. And so there are parts of the community that were starting to be against sand harvesting. So, um, of course, with, the, with an unregulated business, that means, um, of course, there's quick cash because the management of sand in the past has been an open access. Anyone can come in so long as you have a shovel, you have a truck that can carry sand. And so because of that unregulated space, it attracts all manner of, um, of people. So at the, at the low level, at the community level, it attracted um, what we call sand loaders. Who are, these are the people who do the actual you know, loading sand onto the, onto the trucks. And so a lot of um, young boys dropped out of school. And we, we have statistics of uh, <clears throat> organizations that were supporting schools in, uh, the uh, kids in school that had uh, a, a drop, registered a drop in their intake because of sand harvesting. Uh, you know, the, the, the boys, you know, dropped out of school and joined mm-hmm. the, the sand harvesting business. And then with these boys without uh, financial management skills, so they had some quick money. And so they would now get into social issues, other social issues such as social vices, such as, um, um, you know, getting into drug abuse, and of course, they went along with the you know teenage girls, and there was an escalated uh, teenage uh, pregnancies. There were many, many reported cases of family you know um, breakdowns because um, either the husbands or the the fathers have gone to to become sand harvesters, and they rarely come back home. So these are some of the social issues. Uh, most of the roads in Makweni, um, other than the main the main um, highways, most of them are, are uh, earth roads, they're maram roads. And so <clears throat> with unregulated sand harvesting, most of these trucks are actually overloaded with sand. And so when they ply on these roads, they cause um, you know, destruction of, of these roads, mm-hmm. making it even impossible for the small, the small vehicles that uh, you know, um, service the, the villages. So that leads to uh, you know impassable roads during the, the 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 rainy season, even during the dry season, they completely destroy the the earth roads 
making them impossible. And so this has an impact on the even the local economy because if you're not able to move your your safe your farm produce or you're not even able to move from one point to another, then that that becomes a whole um, social and economic issue for a community. Especially because uh, Makwini County is an arid, well, a semi-arid area, so our rains are very erratic. Of course, now with climate change uh, impacts, then they even become more, um, you know, um, unpredictable. And so this has a, a direct impact on the water availability. Most of the people in Makwini drink water from undeveloped sources. I would say rivers, boreholes, from uh, dug up wells in the rivers. And so this had an impact on water availability. And this directly affects the woman, the girl child who has to even travel longer distances looking for water or spend more time for the wells to be filled up with water so that they can draw. So it was a whole mix of social, economic, environmental issues that were brought about by unregulated sun harvesting. Unregulated sun harvesting actually also is a big security issue, especially when we started having a part of the community um, starting to you know, reject sun harvesting, mm. actually targeted by the pro-sun harvesters, uh, sun harvesting guys. And so it, became, it, it brought a lot of tensions in some, of the, some parts of the county we actually have three people who are who are killed because of sun harvesting issues. The people who are in uh, sun management then were also being threatened. So it was just a, a big security issue. So I would say that's also a big factor, a, a social issue that we cannot overlook that comes with unregulated sun harvesting. And so with the coming in of, an, uh, of, a, of a county government and being headed by a very progressive um, governor who, who was once an environment minister in Kenya, the first thing he did was to uh, ban sand harvesting for commercial use outside the county. And so he did this and put together a task force that would now um, just look at this, the entire you know, sand, um, sand management space and give, um, like, uh, give uh, some recommendations on how to manage that space. And what kind of recommendations were these? For the county to be able to manage sand, then we we needed to have a legislation. There was no, uh, we were not going to be able to manage sand and govern it properly without some laid down uh, uh, you know, laws. And so the county assembly, that is the parliament at that level, um, in 2015 uh, passed um, a legislation that is the Makwini County Sand uh, Conservation and Utilization of, uh, Act of 2015. That basically um, gives mandates to the authority, which is the sand authority, to manage all sand issues around the county. So, mm-hmm. it is, so the sand authority becomes the, the policy instrument for the county government on all matters to do with sand. Well, to me, these sound really significant. I mean, what has been the reaction? As much as we are trying to do it, there's no enthusiasm from the other players because they may not understand why it's necessary to do it. And so even across the country, um, we have 47 counties in Kenya and only Makwini County is managing their sand. Mm. Well, of course, the 47 are not all uh, sand uh, harvesting counties. I would say there are about 12 that are active in sand harvesting, like right. major producers of sand, but none of them is, is uh, doing anything about regulation. And so this already tells you that there could be low awareness or um, just a bit of ignorance from 
both the, the government, the civil society, the, even the community to, to manage sand or to even understand why it's important to manage sand. The other thing is that, of course, it's a big revenue earner for a lot of countries and counties. And so the counties that are not regulating are actually making a lot of money, they're raising a lot of revenue for their, for their counties from the sale of sand. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes, um, you know, uh, it's a matter of trade-off. Do we manage sand and not gain so much revenue? Or do we continue you know, selling sand until, well, God knows when. But if we actually looked at the competing claims of a sand, what availability for us in the asal areas, you know, availing sand for construction because we still have to go on and construct, availing sand for, for the river itself, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it plays a, you know, it strengthens the river banks, it strengthens the riverbed. If we would actually look at the competing claims of a sand and then make a very clear judgment on why and how we want to regulate, then I think the, the, the conversation will be more progressive. But a lot of people are, are still stuck on the, we are collecting revenue. Well, it's difficult. And I think it's difficult for some of the, the perhaps the young men that you're, you're speaking about opportunities for well-paid work are quite limited um, in, in some areas. And this is kind of a, a quick way, like you say, to to get quite a good amount of money. So it it's difficult without seeing that in, in, in context, I think. Yeah, it's also driven a lot by, you know, um, lack of employment. Uh, you know, the developing countries, the poverty levels are still very high. And so is the unemployment levels. And unfortunately, we have a huge, uh, I think two-thirds of our population is uh, composed of the youth, young, energetic, um, you know, with young families, and they have to fend for them. And so mm-hmm. they have to look for money from anywhere, everywhere. And for some reason, the extractive resources are very attractive to people that don't have a lot of uh, capital to invest. And so it attracts a lot of people as, as a source of livelihood for them. And so as we deal with the managing the competing claims of a sun, we must also look at it from a, a broader scope. That is, what are the other drivers mm-hmm. um, that facilitate the trade of sand, the unregulated uh, sand business? And unemployment is one of them. Uh, poverty level is one of them. And we really need to look at those things in a holistic way, instead of singling out one issue and running with it. Well, thank you so much for joining today, Halanishi. It's really great to hear from you um, in a bit more depth. And outside of the conversations that we've had beyond this podcast, I know that a lot of people have really kind of resonated with your work and your insights um, and are really kind of using this as a potential blueprint model for managing sand resources elsewhere, particularly in contexts where there is huge demand for sand from nearby cities. So thank you so much. Welcome, Frank. It's really great to have you. I've heard about your work and we've engaged briefly prior to this podcast to understand a little bit more about your research. But I'm really excited here today to be learning a bit more about a dimension that I'm not familiar with. So thanks so much. I wondered if you could briefly introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Frank Müller. Uh, I, I live in Germany. I live in Berlin currently. My research has been well, so far primarily focused on housing and security. I've been working in Mexico City and also in informal governance and social inequality in urban areas, particularly in Rio de Janeiro and in Medellin in Colombia. 
And so in this context, how does sand come into the picture when thinking about urbanization and security? Sand is, is on the one, one side actually needed in combination with gravel um, or also rubble um, to actually, let's say, prepare the ground for further construction. So from what we've discussed then, these are really kind of geologically insecure areas, as you've said. So to be clear then, so the ground is swampy and prone to floods. Sand is then brought here to prepare the ground for construction. And then sand is used to build on that land. Given the various levels of insecurity around the land itself, both legally and also structurally, are people buying this land and buying these houses? Yes, people do buy this. Um, they sometimes have no alternatives than to buy areas that are not in, let's say, official urbanized or, um, urban plans that are not foreseen for construction or for civil construction, exactly because of their, let's say, risky status or because of they are uh, located in nature reserves. So actually, there should not be construction. But due to exactly that, let's say, unstable status, they are cheaper for low-income people and for that sense, actually, the only alternatives for them sometimes. With, the, let's say, the, the ownership of that plot of land on which they then construct their houses, the favelas, usually there is no legal ownership related to that. So um, there is a specific situation when those people can prove to have lived on that plot, even if it's, in, let's say, not, in, let's say, an informal plot. If they have lived there for five years and can, they can prove their presence in that plot, they also gain the right to adequate housing, which would be an apartment in the social housing program, Minya Casa, Minya Vida. And this is where sometimes residents actually strategically also buy those plots because they speculate on, let's say, maybe the opportunity to later on receive an apartment in a formal housing development just for having had ownership over one of those plots that they are offered on the illegal market. This seems like a really important insight. I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more and tell us about some other facets of security or insecurity as they play out in this context. So I think on a more structural level, sand is crucial or really essential. That is, I would say, one of my preliminary findings in that economic or let's say that value chain that sustains malicious activities. Just to be clear, what do you mean by militias in this context? Can we be a bit more specific? Personally, I do not have too much information about mm. militias and where those militias come from. We know they have grown out of um, fireworkers, firemen and policemen and let's say military police working off duty or retired. Um, and then they take up weapons or they keep their weapons and their knowledge, and then they kind of form those community defense groups. Mm. So when I say militias, it sounds like a catch-all for quite a diverse actor, actually. There's an internally diverse actor with many branches, yeah. with a strong hierarchy, um, with links into the former politics until the level of presidency, but also very local. 
mm-hmm. um, and into business opportunities and also private security guards and private security firms. In this framework then, how do we understand or who, in your understanding, whose security is most threatened or whose security is maintained? Definitely the security of the residents living in those areas, those people living on the margins of those margins, actually. Those who uh, start to settle there and are hoping actually for improvements that are hoping to, let's say, see their promises fulfilled and see their citizen rights actually fulfilled, um, who are often actually forced into that those relationships with the militias, buying from them, um, supporting their protection records, let's say, supporting, giving money for that, um, and still not receiving the protection they would actually expect, hope, or deserve. Um, so, yes, it's it's those those people basically living in the in the peripheries of the of the cities where militia's yeah. influence is actually still um, expanding but also let's say those people that become more or less involuntarily or forcefully part of those groups of those mm-hmm. gangs so um, they might whatever you look at them as victims or yes sometimes people see no other opportunity it's also very good research on that, yeah. showing that, um, yeah, looking at those people as, let's say, or those groups as actually righteous groups that are actually providing security, that are actually providing betterments. I've sounded sometimes as a bit too good and bad, mm-hmm. distinctive, but this is not what I intend to, to, to express. Well, as I've said, I feel like this is a really important topic and understanding exactly how sand is variously embedded and really implicated in security or insecurity regimes in the city seems like a significant line of inquiry that might be carried to other urban environments. There's so much more then that I'd like to be able to ask and share with the listeners, but I will direct them to your work. So thanks so much for sharing your research with us today, Frank. Thanks, Kate, for your invitation. Sumia, welcome. It's great to have you here today to tell us about your work, um, of which I understand the research stage is still kind of in its earlier moments. But for me, it's really exciting to be talking with you at this moment in your work. So great to have you. Could you introduce yourself? Hi, Kate. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, I'm uh, Soumya Pandey. I'm a doctoral researcher at the Chris Mikkelsen Institute, Norway, and the University of Ghent, Belgium. And um, I'm working on the political economy of riverine sand mining in South Asia. You mentioned you'll be basing your work in South Asia. And I know that there is a a growing literature on insecurity and security and sand in South Asia specifically. takes into account huge diversities as it's a big region. But I wondered if you could talk a little on this emerging literature. Sand mining in the context of South Asia is actually understood as something which is a very... uh, violent business and you know a lot of mafias are involved in it and uh, i think in this sense like uh, the literature a lot of literature is also coming out uh, from within anthropology and uh, uh, in social sciences in general there's uh, i think the mafia raj one book and the other is uh, um 
this there's one by uh, Lucia uh, Michelotti, Barbara Harris White, and this basically political economists and anthropologists coming together and uh, talking about yeah the wild uh, east. Yeah, that's the name. Uh, they're talking about uh, how illegality works in South Asia, right? And uh, I think what they were really able to draw our attention to was how um, sand business in South Asia is a space where, uh, you know, petty crimes and state both entangle and collude in a way, right? And they're using... Uh, in trecho, it's like an Italian word where which signifies that how crime is not separate or you know it's not uh, it's not an alternate domain but it is part of the state and I think these analytic frames become very important to understand sand business networks in in South Asia and at least for India and Nepal I can speak that it's important then to also consider how political parties get funded, who collects tax, who gets the revenue from the tax that is collected. Mm. And, you know, even also taking care of the means of production and who owns these means of production, who are the people who get excluded from this whole political economy. So to turn to your work more closely, where exactly in South Asia? I mean, you mentioned India and Nepal in your previous response. Is this where you will be focusing your work? I'm working on the Nepal-India border and the rivers that are shared by the two nations. And uh, since I'm focusing on riverine sands, I'm just focusing on the rivers and the sand mining activities, mostly which are artisanal and small scale that are taking place in this region. This sounds like a really fascinating space to be engaging with as a border zone, thinking about the border as both a real and imagined space, a kind of always in the making political space. How does a material like sand, which we know moves like a fluid in riverine environments, how does sand operate in this space? So I'm aware that you're in the early stages of your research, but I'm wondering how you envisage the relationships between sand, riverine sand and the border. I don't have enough information to uh, be able to comment on what does my ethnographic data really show at this stage. But, you know, I really want to talk about the place that I'm looking at in some detail because it will also help us understand how complex this whole thing is that, you know, because the rivers are shared by the two nations, of course, the material flowing through the rivers are also shared, right? And then there's a constant state of uh, conflict already that exists in terms of the rivers and the entire Tarai region, which is kind of very prone to quote-unquote natural disasters. And uh, because of that, there's already a lot of discussion, like discussion going around about the environmental crisis of the region and you know how there are a lot of conservation efforts taking place because this region was rich in forests and for the longest time was inaccessible to the colonial authority and now we're, there's deforestation it has the youngest mountains there's a lot of soil erosion taking place perhaps one of the highest in the world where so the kind of sand that's flowing down these mountains is like a lot and so even like the sh sharing of that uh, resource is so much in contestation. This sounds like a really ecologically insecure region with sand at the heart of it, with so many unfolding relationships. So thank you so much for joining, Soumya. I'm very much looking forward to reading your work in the near future. And I'm sure those listening also feel the same. Thank you.
Hi, Kofi and Katerina. It's great to have you here. Um, we've spoken a lot and have been doing some work together for a forthcoming documentary. And you both have so much insight into the issue of sand mining in the greater Accra region of Ghana. So I'm really excited to have you here. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Katarina Hemmler. I'm from the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen in Germany. And I've been working on sand winning in Accra and Ghana for the last one and a half or two years now. I'm Kofi Asari, University of Cape Coast. I'm working on the socioeconomic implications of sand mining within communities around the Greater Accra and the Central Region. And I've been working on this for the past uh, two years. Thank you. Okay, so um, I know you've both been working in the farming communities around Accra. So this is in the Greater Accra region itself, as well as the neighbouring Central Region. Could you explain to us the situation with respect to land ownership here, thinking about the farming communities you've engaged with? Because I think that would be really helpful to understand that a bit more before we unpack some impacts that you've been unearthing. So from the communities I have studied so far, I've studied four communities. Two of them are settler communities. And what I mean by settler communities are that they are not originally from the area that they are residing now. So those communities migrated to these areas because the area was so conducive for farming activities. So originally, they are not the landowners. They were just leasing lands um, from the landowners or the chiefs. And because of that, they are not so powerful when it comes to decisions as to what the land should be used for. So they are very vulnerable. I mean, they don't have any control with the land. If today they cultivate their crops and then the landowner decides to mine it, they don't have any say in it. I mean, they just have to hope that they find another vacant land somewhere. And sometimes they, you know, jump from land to land and the miners also keep chasing them after. So it looks like the issues get being replicated. Then the other communities, two other communities in the central region are indigenous communities. They are originally from that community. And then the lands in the community belongs to them. However, the lands are entrusted into the care of the chiefs. And in the local Ghanaian system, the chiefs are not so answerable to the community members. Community members cannot challenge the decisions of the chiefs. So in these areas, two similar situations happen. The chiefs decide to mine the lands and then their community members or citizens have no control over and they are equally as vulnerable as I mean, the sexual communities. So really, these studies that are areas that we are studying, sand mining communities, I mean, share some similarity with respect to vulnerability in terms of access to lands. Uh, for farming activities and even other land-based livelihood activities. Thank you. That was a really kind of clear way of explaining what feels like quite a contested, complex situation. So the farming communities you've been working with don't necessarily have a lot of power over the land that they cultivate, leaving them in quite vulnerable and precarious states, particularly in the context of a city that is expanding. So in this context then, what kind of work have you been doing and what have you found? We are at a stage of data collection and then we've spoken to so many different communities, um, different stakeholders uh, involved in the sand mining activity. And on my part, I've also spoken to because I'm looking at the general community livelihood, I'm speaking with other forms of livelihood in these communities. And then even though we have not done the analysis yet, I mean, what is so clear at this stage is that 
there is a clear connection between sand mining and its effects on all these forms of livelihoods that um, are in these communities. So we can confidently say that there is really a clear connection with sand mining and this adverse impact on um, local livelihoods. And so as Kofi said, we did um, many interviews. Um, so those were qualitative and quantitative interviews. So we spoke to like sand contractors, truck drivers, and different other stakeholders. And um, then my main work was on the quantitative interviews with farmers. So I worked in uh, three communities and spoke to around 30 farmers in each community to assess like the impact of sand winning on their livelihood. And then I also went out to the field um, to look at the soil and take soil data to really see how the sand winning affected the quality of the soil that the farmers are working with. And what have you found, broadly speaking? So, yeah, I can freely say that many farmers have been affected. Um, many farmers have lost their livelihoods, um, both in terms of subsistence and um, also their income. That is quite obvious throughout all the communities. Then the soil samples I haven't analyzed yet, um, so you'll have to ask me again in <laughs> half a year. <laughs> um, but it is quite obvious that the land that has been mined cannot be used for farming again for at least some years. Um, so all the farmers that worked on the field said their land cannot be used for farming anymore. The soil is either very hard because um, they mine down the, to the bedrock or um, some areas are also waterlogged because um, you know they change the topography of the land. So whenever it rains, um, the water just collects. And um, so, yeah, it's not suitable for farming anymore at all. And how do you think this affects food security, both thinking about the communities you've been working with, but also Accra as this growing city? Um, you have to see that all this is happening, you know, where other things are also happening simultaneously. I've heard from farmers that Rain patterns are changing um, due to climate change. Um, so many farmers already are reducing from two seasons a year that they previously did to one season a year. Because farmers in general are very vulnerable. They all rely on rainfall and like other conditions for their crops to grow. Um, so food security is already an issue, you know, in a developing country. And um, then sand winning, of course, um, takes away farmland that is... Um, is of course important for the community as i said it's often used for subsistence but then also the farmland is close to the city so um sand winning takes away the farmland that can easily bring food to the city so um i think it will also have an effect on the food security in holakra yeah i, I mean that, that that's kind of what i can imagine and a few people that i've spoken to in the government have suggested that this you can already feel this through certain prices. Is that something that you think you agree with as well, Kofi? Yeah, so I, I think I agree with Katarina on this. I've spoken with some persons who are engaged in trading of food items. For instance, people who sell potato, yam, and the plantain at the market, because of course I'm also looking at that. And then some will tell you that, oh, these products were things that originally we had in our community, so we didn't have to travel to other places to have them to sell. But now they have to travel to some other communities far from where they are to I mean, get those products to sell in their community. So it really points to it that now some few items that originally or before they could have from the community, they are losing them now. But of course, the issue with um, prices too. Now, um, price of those commodities are comparatively quite higher compared to how much it used to cost 
the first time mining activities. So clearly it's you know, pointing to the fact that even at the micro community level, this issue shortage has started coming up. So with time, if these sand mining issues are replicated in other parts of the country, then of course, I mean, food security issues with food security is really going to I mean, be an issue to contend with. There will be so times ahead that certain products, I mean, we are not going to have access to them. And then there were other community members who were engaged in what we call forest gathering. So they go to the forest, some gather snail, and then they, they sold it at the market. Now, because of sand mining activities, deforestation, and then carrying away of the sun, some of these things that they used to collect from the forest is also no more. So now those people are also out of work. And of course, those type of food that uh, community members used to have they don't have access to those food items any longer. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the issues that are facing these communities, both in terms of health and, and other social issues that are really increasing as a result of, of sand mining in the area. Now, what we realised was that um, there are issues of, like I mentioned earlier, um, malaria issues are quite high because of the galleys that become breeding spaces for mosquitoes. There one other community that I did study, there were respiratory issues because there's so much dust in the community now. Uh, trucks passing by with, with, without covering the sand. Mm-hmm. And then there's so much noise in the community. Then uh, on the social aspect, some community members complain that some farmer households have already relocated from the community. So the attachment that they had with all those um, people who have relocated to areas that they think um, they can have access to farmlands. It's also affecting the general community life, the kind of bonding that they had, the social interactions. So really, it cut across all aspects of the community's life. They're not just about their livelihood, their health, their relationship, their culture. Certain um, trees that they claim to be cultural, now you, you go and do all those uh, trees have been cut down. Now people um. don't want to... People don't really regard their chiefs any longer. They don't respect them because they think the chief has given out the land and now we don't have it. So rules in the communities that they think were instituted by the chiefs, now people want to deliberately break those rules to show their protest I mean, to the disapproval of the chiefs giving them out. So sand mining really even though it's good for uh, infrastructural development. But of course, if this is the way it is going to be mined in Ghana, then obviously the adverse effects far outweighs um, the positive impact of sun mining activities. Well, there's really so much there that you've offered, but there's so much more that I know you both have such in-depth knowledge on. So I will be directing people to your work so they can follow your ideas and your research a bit more closely, but I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there today. But thank you so much for joining us from Accra. Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining.